Hello and welcome to episode 73 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your co-host, Peter Alegi. And I'm Peter Lim. Our special guest today is Dr. Doug Henriksen, a Namibian researcher, archivist, and lecturer at Basler Africa Bibliographian, Namibia Resource Center and Department of History at Basel University in Switzerland. His 1997 PhD at Hamburg University was published in 2011 in both Windhoek, Namibia and in Basel as Herrschaft und Alltag und Vorkolonial Zentral Namibia, das Herero und Damaraland in he has published very widely on Namibia and been involved in numerous research, archival and exhibition projects, many in direct collaboration with Namibians. Amongst his other very interesting works are new notes on Kauko, the northern Kanani region, Namibia, in text and photographs in 2000, the very fascinating book African Posters in 2004, and we'll come back to these issues of posters and archives later on, and he's also published Building Bridges, Namibian Nationalists, Clements Kapuo, Hosea Kutako, Brendan Simbaye, Samuel Whitboy in 2010. He's co-organizer of the September 2013 Refiguring the South African Empire Conference in Basel. Dr. Henriksen. Thank you very much, Peter, and thank you very much, Peter, for inviting me to your podcast uh, and for having me as a guest at Michigan State University. Well, it's great to have you, and one of the ways that we like to begin often with our guests is to have them share with us a little bit of their background, and in your case, how you got involved in Namibian studies. This is a fairly straightforward story. Being from Namibia, I happened to start my studies in history in West Germany and strangely enough uh, had to accept that at the time in the 1980s it was not very easy to study African history. So I went to take a year of African history at Leiden University in Holland and with advisors and supervisors such as Robert Ross and Adam Cooper, the anthropologist, they got me into pre-colonial Namibian history, the pre-colonial history of my home country, which fascinated me and uh, continues to fascinate me until today. I quickly noticed that uh, there was hardly any recent academic research having been done on pre-colonial Namibian history with the exception uh, in terms of latest research by the work of Brigitte Lau, a well-known German scholar having been trained at UCT and having moved into a regional history of southern Namibia. At the same time, in the 1980s, some Finnish colleagues picked up on pre-colonial northern Namibian history. I decided in a simplistic way to focus on a regional history of central Namibia for the 19th century. This is basically how it got me into Namibian studies. Well, perhaps we could turn to your interesting new research on Herero intellectuals in, in this area of central Namibia. And you're giving a talk this week here at Michigan State entitled, The Whites Will Eat the Velkos Which the Blacks Are Eating Today, A Secret Archive, Herero Intellectuals, and Post-Genocidal Radical Thought. 
in central Namibia in the late 1940s. Can you tell us briefly about the texts and the thoughts, the visions, the ideas, as recorded by this fascinating man that you're going to tell us about, Amon Kija Kakur? Yes, in fact, it's the archives of two intellectuals, two Oshiro-speaking intellectuals, prominent in the 1940s, the one being, as you mentioned, Amon Kea Kakua, born in around 1890, and the other one being Petros Ngontonia Pakarae, born slightly earlier in 1887. These two men formed a fascinating alternative dissenting archive for various reasons. One of the main reason being that they and their network were seemingly at odds with more established Herero organizations, but also at odds with mission church institutions. So in a way, it's an alternative archive. It's definitely intellectual, an archive of intellectuals situated in a discourse of modernity. But it's very particular when it comes to the texts you were asking me about. A main section of these texts includes statements, exclamations, visions as having been voiced and performed by men in the late 1940s in Windhoek during praying sessions in the Rhenish Mission Church. What seems to have happened is that out of a situation of great social and political distress, a group of men started these praying sessions and the one intellectual, Amon Kea Kakua, then afterwards took down what had been said and performed and jotted by starting with the date and even the time, 1.30 p.m., to jot down these statements, exclamations and visions. So it's a kind of diary referencing these statements by these men who performed. It's important to stress that the men who performed were not always present. They are also often voices by ancestral men, deceased evangelists, deceased chiefs who in these performances come up but sort of documented by Amon Kakea as if they were present. So it's a very complex sort of documentation of diverse voices. One fascinating aspect is that Amon Kakua, who is the authoritative voice and he is the narrator and scriber, doesn't streamline the dissenting opinions and conflicting discussions amongst these men. Given the high levels of morality, of millenarian visions seemingly being brought up during these performances, there were high levels of dissent about whom to follow and which course of action to take. These were discourses in many ways not only about the past and analysis 
of a distressing current situation, but discourses about the future, and obviously people disagree. And he documents these disagreements, which I find extremely fascinating. This was a time where the nascent sort of African nationalist movement was starting to connect more broadly. It was in touch with the ANC leader Omar in Johannesburg, and there is a petition that goes to the UN that is taken by the ANC president and there is correspondence with some of the Herero leaders. And so you mentioned also the discourse that's emerging and there's also, I understand, a, a sort of a, a protest vision here that is calling for radical change. That's right. And yet this is within the church. This is being played out within the church. So how did these intellectuals relate to this slowly emerging, what we might call the roots of the liberation movement? It's a difficult question to answer. The space, the church, I think, is just used mm. by these men. The concern of these men relates, one could say, to sort of the general condition of the colonial situation. They are not always and in particular concerned with, let's say, Herero politics and Herero traditions. They very often refer to conditio humana, which I find interesting. It's a concern and a responsibility which they take on themselves to reflect on the general conditions and sort of problems created by colonialism and by the apartheid politics in uh, particular. It seems to me that at this stage where Namibian nationalist organizations were not yet in place, these only sort of get started a few years later, why one could make few sort of observations with regard to, you mentioned uh, Dr. Zuma and the ANC, it's interesting to note that in that particular document you mentioned, which he sent to uh, the United Nations, he claims that as the people of Southwest Africa cannot yet stand on their own feet, there is a kind of duty to speak for them. This archives is a clear indication that people sort of could speak mm. and did speak. Mm perhaps not sort of, in this case, to outsiders. The documents are all in Oshierero. So obviously there is a very sort of secretive framework surrounding these documents. But it's again an indication that, of course, apart from um, chiefs and some other political African leaders in Namibia, you had intellectuals which could speak for themselves. And in fact, the archives, I would argue, document in a way the attempt to construct a new center, but not necessarily a center sort of with a particular nationalist approach. It seems to me that uh, one side of that secrecy of that archive also has to do with uh, great dissatisfaction with regard to the more traditional politics of leaders such as G. Fosea Kotaku. It is an archive that seemingly determinedly was formed not only outside the realms of the state native administration, 
the church, the mission church, but also outside the realms of the conventional archives of the chiefs. And Kakuo was also a survivor of the genocide that took this place is, under I German think, colonialism. an important aspect. Most of the men who sort of presented by Kakua are in fact survivors of the 1904 genocide. Now looking at the visions that they propose, and the, these are very, some of them are very radical. The most radical one being a plea for reversing the colonial order and playing for a new war for bloodshed. It might be surprising for men who have experienced a genocide to plea for such drastic change and, in fact, for renewed war. But as I said, not everybody agrees. Slightly Fanon-esque, mm -hmm. uh, this approach, about uh, you know, a few years before Fanon's uh, first publications, which is quite interesting. You, you've also looked at pre-colonial Right. Herero history. You, right. uh, Peter brought up the genocide. You've written about cattle and, and pastoralism. Can you discuss for our listeners where the Herero people were coming from and in terms of some of the broad themes of, of later history, including uh, the genocide? Yeah, indeed I focus very much on 19th century Herero history if you want to have it. For lack of a better term. In retrospective, I perhaps uh, have to say I might have uh, sort of taken some notions of constructing ethnic identity too seriously. And on the other hand, in some ways, this was a main question which I ask, as you phrase it, sort of where did Oshirero-speaking people came from in the 19th century? And the literature, the academic uh, literature, especially the anthropological literature, cast Oshirero-speaking people up to the 1980s virtually as conservative pastoral people. My research, hopefully convincingly, has shown that, yes, indeed, these were pastoral people with an intense pastoral ideology, but they firstly not always lived as pastoralists with livestock. And secondly, they experienced and in fact managed very actively great transformations. And a crucial aspect of my argument is that these supposedly very conservative cattle owners became cattle owners because of mercantile capitalism expanding from the Cape from the middle of the 19th century. And Herrero, with their pastoral experiences and ideologies, managing to tap into the new economic economities, uh, um, opportunities, managing them, capturing them, and being able to build huge herds and, in fact, establishing hegemonic chiefdoms. So my sort of my vision, if you want to have it like that as a historian, makes Herrero sort of very modern, very modern pastoralists from the 19th century onwards. This, of course, has a tremendous effect then when it comes to the genocide. To my reasoning, Herrero sort of enter a war as modern pastoralists with a clear understanding what was at stake. They did not enter that war as sort of traditional warriors, if you want to have it. 
and the implications of this different perspective which I try to argue for, of course, has many consequences. And one is that, of course, the survivors of the genocide, they sort of retain this modernity which they and their forefathers had already constructed. So they continue, as these two intellectuals, Kakua and mm. Pokare, mm. testify yes. to modernity which they are very familiar with. Well, the, we, it's well known that the genocide in Namibia was the first genocide of the 20th century. And if we fast forward, we see an, the other really pronounced crime against humanity in the region is, is apartheid. And apartheid is often seen as a purely South African plague, if you like, and yet was also imposed on Namibia. And Namibia, Southwest Africa, was in many ways uh, a colony of what we could call the South African Empire. And you are deeply involved with a series of pathbreaking conferences and research that's going on at the moment on conceptualizing this South African Empire. And there will be a conference in Basel in September around this, and there has been one recently at the University of the Western Cape. What do you think this South African Empire, perhaps both in the segregation period and then in the apartheid period, meant, say, to the Herero or other Namibian indigenous peoples? Of course, in some, if not many ways, this particular archive of these intellectuals speak to South African colonialism out of the experiences with German colonialism. Mm. And the radical plea by some of the participants of these performances in 1946-48 of reversing the colonial order is inextricably linked to both these experiences and the highly distressing sort of apartheid situation which they do experience. So there is definitely this link. But as I try to argue, the concern of these men and the responsibility which they seem to take on themselves is to reflect on sort of the general human condition of colonialism in general. I pose this slightly naive, slightly stupid and slightly provocative question to our colleagues at the University of the Western Cape doing our workshop in, in, in February, whether one could see these two intellectuals as the in Namibian France Fanon, and I got some harsh comments. But what I want to say is that I find it interesting to think beyond sort of the frameworks of South African colonialism in general, South African apartheid in particular at that time, think beyond any sort of incipient Namibian nationalism. And I do think there is a claim that some of these texts and visions not only speak to these particular ideologies, but yes, indeed take on a responsibility to reflect on this human condition in a general colonial society. And you yourself have led a, what we might call a a postmodern turn involving the preservation and collection of Namibiana, of archives, of posters, of even shopping bags. Uh, you have, with your colleagues in Namibia and in, in Basel, 
embarked upon a grand project, if you like, of building the largest archive on Namibia outside Namibia, I think we, we can say. And this includes the largest collection of Namibian posters. I'm sure the largest collection of Namibian shopping bags as well. <laughs> Could you talk about this sort of work that you've been involved with, with your colleagues? Every imaginable sort, I mean, you took myself and colleagues at a conference a few years ago on a tour of these archives and they struck me with their broadness. But this, you were also involved in an amazing partnership of publishing and preservation with Namibians. It's a very Africa-centric sort of project that you're doing. Could you talk to these issues of, if you like, the, the post-colonial archive? Yeah. Well, many of the foundations of these activities uh, which you mentioned uh, in, in Basel, of course, were laid down by the founder of our institute, Karl Schlettwein. His project of collecting Namibiana, to put it like this, was in many ways project from the 1960s onwards to decolonize knowledge on Namibia. And he lived in Namibia? He had lived in Namibia and from the 1960s he lived in Switzerland mm. and could not only collect on Namibia as a bibliographical entity, he in a way sort of participated in establishing Namibia as a separate bibliographical entity outside sort of the South African grip. He did something very strange in a way. He started to publish a Namibian national bibliography out of Switzerland. But sort of given the Cold War uh, frameworks, and on the one hand, and the difficulty of doing research in Namibia itself at the time because of uh, South African control, uh, this uh, was in a way, you could say, a uh, logic. It definitely was in some ways uh, quite a bold attempt to contribute to this decolonization of uh, knowledge on uh, Namibia. He simultaneously started a publishing activity, which we retain until uh, today. He already uh, started uh, to collaborate with uh, Namibian institutions uh, at the time on various levels. And some of these special collections which you touched on, uh, such as the poster collection, when we uh, sort of uh, formulated a new framework for his collections in the middle of the 1990s, together with him still, we found a few posters so we could build on some of the smaller collections which happened to arrive in Basel. But indeed, we sensed at the time, especially my colleague, uh, Giorgio Miescher, that collecting posters would enable us to move into sort of historical visuality, which as historians uh, we were very much uh, interested in. And given sort of the interest in visuality at the time, this was useful. And on the other hand, it enabled us to participate out of Basel with regard to an ephemeral production of everyday visual literacy in Namibian public spaces. What I want to say is that sort of posters as visuals which not only announce elections but which educate with regard to tuberculosis or HIV AIDS, which advertise beer, most prominently Namibian beer, but also then beauty contests and what have you not. These are sort of everyday visuals which people are confronted with. Karl Schlettwein had laid the foundations for a big 
collection of ephemera with the explosion of visuals in public spheres in Namibia from the late 1980s onwards, both on the side of consumerism and in the political sphere given the independence of Namibia, this sort of made us realize here is a field in which we should engage in. Only at a later stage we then ask these important questions as historians, now how do posters act actually? How do they influence people? You can say, well, they're hanging in public spaces, in the shop windows, uh, um, at the lamp pounds, but this doesn't necessarily mean that they influence people. Perhaps one way to start bringing our conversation to a close is to, with a reflection and, and a question, recent scholarly works on colonial and post-colonial Namibia seem to have had a contradictory effect. Uh, they've greatly deepened our understanding of Namibia's national past, while highlighting at the same time the importance of specific subnational, even clan histories, for example, Kostler's In Search of Survival and Dignity, or factors like gender and generational dynamics, as in McKittrick's To Dwell Secure, or environmental history and the history of migration in Krika's Recreating Eden. So in light of this apparent contradiction, what are your thoughts on doing national history? I read Marion Wallace's A History of Namibia in preparation for this interview, and she acknowledges your contribution in the very first paragraph. What are the future directions from Namibian history? That's an important question. Obviously, it's close to not only my heart, but the hearts of a couple of uh, colleagues, including Marion and some of the colleagues she does mention in the first paragraph. Uh, and it is a political question, not only because in, as in all sort of African, newborn African national uh, countries, this question turns up, but in the case of Namibian history, it also is a political uh, question because of the direction of South African historiography. And I say this because the Namibian history for much of the 20th century is tied up in so many ways with South African history. So the politics of South African historiography are also crucial for, to put it like this, the politics of Namibian history. And our South African empire is very much sort of playing with this and uh, sort of in a provocative way trying to sort of integrate these historiographical and more political issues when it comes to making and researching history on Namibia for the 20th century. Now, it seems to me that we do need more local histories in the Namibian context, given the dearth of research. And we do need local histories with very clear sort of perspective on African history. This is sort of my conviction. On the other hand, it's quite obvious that none of us wants to have a patriotic history. And it is a worrying sign when uh, listening to sort of public discourses in uh, Namibia, very much from the political quarters and from quarters 
of those administrators who administer public history bases, such as museums or monument sites, that there is an increasing inclination towards a patriotic history. And we all know what this implies, and we have no interest in following this. I think Marion Wallace, with her wonderful and uh, long overdue history of Namibia, manages a very acceptable and, of course, very scholarly uh, balance in this regard. There was and is a need for a national history of Namibia, but there is no need for a nationalist, nothing to say, patriotic history. It's quite encouraging in this respect to look at the new generation of young Namibian scholars who very much touch on local and regional histories and seem to be very much aware of the dangers uh, of putting it into more nationalistic frameworks. Well, it's uh, a tremendous contribution that you and your Namibian studies colleagues in Namibia and South Africa and Basel uh, and uh, other places are making. Thank you so very much, Dr. Dark Henriksen, for talking to Africa Past and Present. I thank you both. Thank you. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters and Social Sciences Online, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Our producer is Annette Giannino, Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcaster sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu. Thanks for listening.